This is ASHA Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. We've invited an expert panel to discuss opioid misuse and those with hearing loss. We're going to discuss the overlap between populations at risk for hearing loss and those at risk for opioid misuse and addiction. And we'll hear what role audiologists can play in making sure these patients are receiving the care they need. If you're concerned about bringing up this sensitive subject with patients, our guests have tips for that as well. Plus, we discuss compounding stigma patients may be experiencing when facing addiction and hearing loss. It's the opioid epidemic and hearing loss on ASHA Voices. Today's panel consists of three guests with a variety of expertise. Kathleen Campbell is an audiologist and autotoxicity expert, and she's a distinguished scholar and research professor at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. Judy Hutch is also an audiologist and founder of Oro Valley Audiology in Arizona. She also runs the nonprofit Grace Hearing Center. And Curry Rigg is a public health researcher and a faculty member in the Department of Mental Health Law and Policy at the University of South Florida. To begin, ask Curry what he thinks people need to understand about the current opioid epidemic and how we might think about addiction. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Right now, a lot of the attention is going to the COVID pandemic, and and rightfully so. There's a lot going on with that. But the opioid crisis, unfortunately, hasn't disappeared. And in fact, it's gotten worse over the last few years. Right now, about 150 Americans die daily from opioid overdoses. And um, just to kind of put that in perspective, that's like, consider like a typical airplane uh, going down in a crash and killing every passenger on board every single day of the year. Right. So that's that's kind of where we're at with things. Opioid overdoses have gotten so high that they now exceed deaths due to suicide, breast cancer, automobile accidents. Last year, 100,000 people died of an opioid overdose, which is actually the worst year on a record for opioid deaths that we've ever had in this country. This is uh, April 2020 to 2021. Is that correct? Correct. Mm hmm. So yeah, so I just think it's uh, it's great that we are bringing awareness to this topic on your podcast, and because you know the opioid epidemic is not going away any anytime soon, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Judy, I wanted to ask you, as a private practice owner, when did you start thinking about how opioids might affect your practice? Well, I started to see it mostly through my veteran population, former military. And I've been seeing them since 1997 and going through and just checking every medication that they've had in the past and that they're currently on to try to figure out was their hearing loss caused by noise or other factors or a combination of everything. And that just got me to thinking about it. So I did more research and that what brought me in 2018 to write my op-ed article that a few of you have run across in the past. This is for The Hill. You wrote an article for The Hill talking about audiologists and what responsibility they might have in the midst of the opioid epidemic, correct? Well, that and as Karee had said, it's a problem on a much larger scale. I personally don't think I should just be concerned about how it affects the hearing. That's my specialty, of course. But them as a person, as a whole 
being and how important it is to keep them here with us because they're so important. That's what really got me to thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned reviewing medication lists. And I think that lends itself to the autotoxicity part of this conversation. Kathleen, I was hoping you'd give us an overview. Where do we see a connection between opioids and hearing loss? I know that, that you've done some research into this. I have. And actually, I was a consultant for the largest phase three clinical trials on opioids for hearing loss, hydrocodone. And so we were looking in those large-scale studies, thousands of patients, to see whether or not there was a connection with hearing loss. And we didn't, within the context of those studies, but the dosing was very, very carefully controlled. And the patients were carefully pre-selected for chronic back pain of a severe nature. So that's different than some of the other reports in the literature for drug addiction, overdose, uncontrolled use. And, you know, that's true for so many drugs. A, a lot of people really, the general public really doesn't understand that more is not better for most drugs, in fact. Uh, even over-the-counter drugs are not safe at any level. Um, I've had patients tell me that, oh, you know, I just take handfuls of aspirin after all, it's over-the-counter, can't do any harm. Uh, and then, of course, with the opioids, uh, you have the additional problem of true addiction. So it's a complex problem. The other problem that you run into, and there's a lot of anecdotal reports in the literature of hearing loss for overdose, the people come in, they're frequently poor historians. The shame element comes into it, which is always a problem. Uh, if you ask people about recreational drug use, uncontrolled drug use, they're going to try to hide that. Um, and we need to get this out of the shadows so people can actually talk about it and get the help they need. But they're also frequently supplementing with other drugs. Some think that acetaminophen uh, is fine at any uncontrolled level, and that's not necessarily true. And there may be an interaction with opioids when they're trying to control more pain. It's, it's very, very complicated. And the confines of using it in very controlled parameters for much needed pain control, again, needed drugs. But trying to get the history out of patients for their other drug use, and I was a clinician for many years, I've been full-time research for about 15 now, is, is very, very difficult. As Judy can tell us, too, is it's uh, very difficult to get patients to come forward and clearly document, and sometimes they don't remember, et cetera. So it's certainly a complicated issue. In 2020, a publication from Rutgers showed a connection between opioid use and hearing loss. Researchers analyzed nearly 20 years' worth of data. They found a link between opioid use and hearing loss. They found that there was a connection. But it seems like there's still a lot of questions about what that connection is. Do you know of evidence that opioid use is causing hearing loss, or is that still kind of a thing for more research? Do you think there is a connection there does seem to be, uh, certainly based on the more anecdotal reports in the literature, for people that uh, abuse opioids and go above recommended levels, there does seem to be probably a causal relationship. Again, very difficult to track in those people. Another issue that plays into it is if you are using opioids, and particularly abusing opioids, your diet probably isn't very good. Are you taking good care of your health? You don't usually find somebody that's working out regularly, has an excellent diet, 
takes their vitamins, and then has opioid overdose. And also during COVID, by the way, alcohol abuse is way up. Alcohol consumption is up. You add that into the mix, and then you, you have the connection to parcel out uh, an increase in alcohol use, opioids, poor diet, uh, which is correlated to hearing loss, lack of exercise, obesity also correlates to hearing loss, lipid disorders also correlate to hearing loss. You know, your whole body is related. Your ears are not an autonomous system. They're connected to everything else. It's very, very difficult to parcel out the various effects. But abuse, yes, probably so. Opioids in a very controlled study, carefully monitored, randomized studies. So the other health uh, factors are the same in both the placebo group and the opioid group. You're not seeing a difference in hearing loss. But in reality, when you have individuals that have uh, opioid addiction and may have other addictions as well and are then not taking care of their health otherwise, then it would not be surprising that the hearing is impacted by that. Mm-hmm. Cree, you published an article in the American Journal of Audiology. It's called Opioid-Induced Hearing Loss and Neonatal Abstinence Syndrome, Clinical Considerations for Audiologists and Recommendations for Future Research. You published it with your wife, who's an audiologist. In that article, you talk a little bit about populations that are at risk for hearing loss and opioid use or misuse. You're pointing to a correlation in that article, I believe, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. When we wrote that paper, one of the things that really stood out to me that I guess I should have been aware of, but it didn't really sink in, was that there is actually quite a bit of overlap in opioid misuse populations and hearing loss populations. And you know what I mean by that is that um, high-risk groups for opioid misuse and high-risk groups for hearing loss overlap quite a bit, basically. Military veterans, for example, which has been already brought up, they're about twice as likely to misuse opioids in the general population. And, and as we know, veterans also comprise a sizable proportion of audiology patients, too. My wife works at the VA. The VA is actually the largest employer of audiologists in the country. Older adults is another population that overlaps quite a bit um, and is a, a relevant population for audiologists. National data show that opioid misuse among older adults has more than quadrupled over the last two decades. And it goes without saying that they're at higher risk for hearing loss and vestibular dysfunction due to their age. And then the big one is manual labor occupations. Um, individuals who work in manual labor occupations like um, you know, like people who work in law, do lawn work or construction, manufacturing, farming, mining, things like that are more likely to experience hearing loss due to the noise exposure on the job. But research shows us that manual labor occupations have a much higher rate of opioid misuse than the general population. So yes, yeah, so the main takeaway there basically is that there is a big overlap between those two populations and a substantial percentage of the audiology patient base also have elevated rates of opioid misuse. And, and that's something that I think, you know, it's not discussed as much, but it, but it's something that um, is important to keep in mind. Judy, you mentioned the populations that you see. Could you speak to this? Yes. As Curry uh, had mentioned, hearing loss and tinnitus are number one and number two in the military, both active duty and the veteran population. 
and part of what I do is compensation and pension examinations. And I have to dig through any records that they have. So I have to search for any injuries, any medications that they've taken, what noise exposure would be associated, and then piece it together as a part of history to submit and whether or not the VA will give them more disability or not. So sometimes I have to go through it kind of in a backdoor kind of way, asking about injuries and then what type of medications. And Kathleen and Korea both had hit this on the head, is the shame involved and how to create the safe space for them to talk about it. And Kathleen also had mentioned more is not better. And sometimes when you're in so much pain that that's really the go-to is just how do they get rid of the pain? But then that brings in tinnitus, which I see a lot of as well, which then negatively affects their mental health as well. So it's just this huge catch-22 and making sure that they get to the services that they need and the help that they need. And and so bringing in other professionals like behavioral health and their primary care and saying these things are happening, would you look into these areas? So there have been times that I have asked the primary to see if there's other pain medications or if cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful, but what's a more holistic approach for the people that I see. That's interesting because it's a little tricky in a way because because correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, of course. So what are you considering whenever you see pain medication? How do you address the issue when you have a concern? All I can do is report on. And the first thing I always tell them is that I am not the one that's prescribing and I cannot tell you how to take your medication. I just do a deep dive into what you're taking, what the interactions can be. If I need to bring maybe a pharmacist in on some of the interactions, Kathleen also had mentioned if there's acetaminophen involved or if they're taking some ibuprofen on the side or aspirin, then saying, have you discussed this with your primary care? Sometimes it's no. Sometimes I'm a little bit more safe space for them to report it and then delicately move it on to the professional that needs to address it. I can't address the medication, but I can say because of noise exposure, because of the pain, because they've been taking this medication for so long, there can be a connection there and to please review it. In the article Karee wrote with his wife, Malika Rigg, the duo includes advice for discussing this sensitive subject with clients and patients. You can find the link to that article on the blog post for this episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. In our conversation, Karee suggests that if you're looking for a good entry point, maybe start the conversation by focusing on cigarettes and alcohol. And Karee mentions using a screening tool created by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In our most recent episode of the podcast, Marshall University's Pam Holland discusses how the language we use to discuss opioid misuse can create stigma. And she gave a couple pieces of advice around the language that we might use. I asked Karee if there is any language that he thinks ideologists might want to know 
when they're talking about opioids with patients or clients. That's so important. I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, first of all, stigma is something that is not easily combated. It's a complex problem, very large scale. But one of the easiest things that we can do as a society, but providers in particular, is avoid the use of stigmatizing language. And oftentimes it's done inadvertently. Terms like drug abuser, junkie, addict, these sorts of terms are known to perpetuate stigma. They alienate the patient who's struggling with the addiction. And there's actually new research that, that shows that when, when this kind of language is used, the patient feels better about themselves and the provider also has uh, more positive attitudes towards the patient. We also recommend using person-first language. So the patient wouldn't be a drug abuser or an addict. They would be a person with a substance use disorder, um, a person with an opioid use disorder. Terms like drug misuse is, pref is preferred to terms like drug abuse. Non-medical use is also a um, more acceptable term or harmful use. So the point here really is just to try to use as much as possible to use language that conveys the notion that addiction is a medical condition, right? It's not a moral failing. It's not because the person has a bad person or has, has a poor character. It's a medical condition. And as much as possible, providers should try and use language that conveys that. If I could just jump in a little bit, I think that it's a, it's a double whammy with hearing loss as well, which is also stigmatized. When I was seeing patients and not dealing with drug abuse necessarily, but I would talk about the loneliness and the anxiety of hearing loss and the alienation of hearing loss. And I would also put in some reassurance to them and their families. I said, you can't remember what you didn't hear in the first place. As we all know, there's a link with Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders and hearing loss. But sometimes it's not necessarily a memory disorder. It's that they really didn't hear it in the first place and it's isolating. And that's gonna exacerbate any drug abuse problems. Because again, the loneliness and isolation compounds and then the stigma of having hearing loss because wearing glasses is fine, but somehow wearing hearing aids is not fine. And so when you put that all together to try to parcel it out and try to destigmatize the hearing loss itself, which they might actually be a little ashamed of because somehow that is a sign of aging or disability that vision loss and wearing glasses is not. I think that helps to just try to destigmatize it and bring it in and start with the hearing loss primary problem and then kind of take it from there. And can I just say, Kathleen, that's a really great point. And for researchers out there, I think that that's a really fantastic research topic. How might hearing loss exacerbate living with an addiction disorder? How might addiction exacerbate or decrease someone's quality of life with hearing loss? I just think that's a fantastic research topic. I think it'd be great too. And also in the time of COVID, I don't know about you guys, we've been isolating pretty much. I've been able to because I could work from home, but I talk on the phone to my friends. Well, if you have a hearing loss and you lose that option to really talk on the phone to your friends, boy, you're going to get more isolated, much more lonely. And then if you have uh, drugs on the shelf, there they are. But I do find that COVID has been very, very isolated for people. And with hearing loss, it's much, much worse. 
Kareem, you mentioned that statistic, 100,000 overdoses since April 2020. And of course, when I hear April 2020, you know, I remember what things were like in April 2020. That was only about a month after the World Health Organization declared that we could begin calling it a pandemic. Do you think there's a link between that number and the pandemic, or is that part of a trend that was before the pandemic? No, actually, the, the pandemic definitely made that worse. It definitely exacerbated the situation. We're actually making some progress prior to the pandemic. Things were beginning to slow a little bit, and we've kind of taken a few steps back with, with that. And just like Kathleen mentioned, um, the pandemic really did a number on people with who are living with addiction. Isolation, people who weren't able to extract the social support from their family and friends. They weren't able to readily get to or speak to their treatment provider because of all the um, safety precautions, even things like 12-step groups and other kind of self-help groups that people with addiction typically go to to derive support. A lot of those things were halted or put online and things like that. So, And we found a lot of people who were using drugs already during the pandemic, their drug use went up to cope with those situations. And a lot of people who were not previously using drugs used drugs during that time period to cope with the pandemic as well. So, so yeah, to answer your question, the pandemic definitely exacerbated the opioid situation for sure. Mm-hmm. Judy, I wanted to ask you, do you have a story of a, a time in your private practice where you encountered opioid use or misuse that you thought might be concerned for someone's hearing? I see it weekly, unfortunately. Like I said, I I see pension and compensation. So everybody is either getting out of the military or they've been out. I think the oldest one that I've visited with, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And so I tell them I'm their historian. So I get to listen to the stories and that part I love. But questioning them on maybe drug misuse because of an injury that they had sustained. And sometimes I have no records to uh, go back and research, and it all has to come from the claimant, the, the vet. Many times I'll encounter schizophrenia, PTSD, and you, all of these things compound their struggles and how do we find the help that they need. So I do encounter it weekly. I do worry for my military brothers and sisters that they don't get to the resources that they need. And how can I make that better? You mentioned military brothers and sisters. Is this personal for you? My son is a Marine and I have my father, my father-in-law, my brother, they were all Navy. I was not serving, but I sure love them. (laughs) So that's kind of the bottom line is how can I love on people and make them healthier at the same time? Just as Karee was talking about person-first language, this is kind of a person-first approach to care as well. Yes. Karee, Judy, Kathleen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for letting me join you. 
I want to mention one other part of the conversation. NAS, or neonatal abstinence syndrome, is the result of opioid use by mothers during pregnancy. The baby's exposure to the opioids via the mother can lead to symptoms in the baby that are related to withdrawal. Carice says audiologists should be aware of NAS if they are conducting newborn hearing screenings because the opioid epidemic is creating more instances of NAS. But the specific connections between NAS and potential hearing loss are what Curie called an under-researched area that needs more and better data. To learn more about NAS and speech and language concerns, listen to the most recent episode of the ASHA Voices podcast. We welcome a mother who adopted a son with prenatal opioid exposure, and we hear from her Marshall University colleague, a researcher whose conversations with school-based speech-language pathologists reveal where the opioid epidemic may be showing up on caseloads. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.